steps out in front of St. Alphonse's Eats. Missing both the shoes with some broken teeth responses. Bloody stained glass like busted in pieces on the ground. The arresting officer, familiar with the situation, picked him up the day before at a notorious location. Pity on the boy with the black eyes lying on the Hey folks, welcome to the Fallon Forum. Thought we'd let you hear a little bit more than usual of uh, one of my favorite tunes by a local band. That band is Brother Trucker. That's Andy Fleming's tune, Downtown. It's a powerful tune about... Oh, uh, about the uh, importance of family or the importance of acceptance, the importance of uh, of not discriminating against folks who might be different uh, one way or the other. Anyway, um, we got quite a lineup for you today, folks. And uh, I do want to, before we uh, take our first uh, guest here on the program, I want to give a shout out to some of our local business partners. Uh, Gateway Marketing Cafe, located at 20th and Woodland. That's my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Gateway also has a catering service. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, located uh, in Nevada, Iowa. Uh, Dr. Kim Holding has been uh, treating all creatures great and small for over 30 years. That's Story County Vet. Thanks also to Ritual Cafe, located on 13th Street, between uh, Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual, uh, noted for its fair trade coffee, fair trade tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. Thanks also to Noche. Noche is Central Iowa's premier home for jazz and cabaret, attracting both national acts and local favorites, and featuring a world-class cocktail bar. Uh, check out Noche on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. And finally, thanks to Cinco de Mayo Restaurant, Located on Southeast 14th Street in Des Moines, authentic Mexican food at very affordable prices with great friendly service at Cinco de Mayo Restaurant. All right, so, you know, we hear a lot of immigrant bashing in the uh, political realm today. Uh, This is nothing new. Maybe it's gotten worse, one could argue. But what goes overlooked is the fact that immigrants are making America great again and in so many different ways. And I'm delighted to have uh, my friend Dan Kim, Dan Kim on the program today. Hello, Dan. How are you? Hi. How are you? This is Dan. Hey, Dan. great. Well, good. Hey, uh, Dan works with uh, Ying Sa, the founder of uh, Community CPA. Uh, And I want to talk about – I know Ying has a book coming out. I want to talk about that. But first, um, uh, the Immigrants uh, Entrepreneur Summit. Is coming up, and mm-hmm. that's in a, you know, some folks I may, might have thought, well, that was a, a one one shot deal, a flash in the pan, but not only has it continued year after year, but it continues to grow, uh, and right. it continues to do amazing work, helping not just immigrants, but anybody who wants to get a small business going, it helps them figure out how to do that, and my understanding is your success rate is pretty impressive. Yes, uh, the. The immigrant entrepreneurs are continuing to make um, a large economic impact in just Iowa alone. And as 
we had seen it's been growing every year. The numbers of new companies that are formed by immigrant entrepreneurs that come to the event. For example, this past year in 2018, IES, we had um, over 172 new businesses formed in just Iowa alone from just, the participants. Just in uh, Iowa, just from the one IES. year. Wow. Just in one year, correct. Mm-hmm. And so we we continue to boast numbers and, and have governor and lieutenant governor sign uh, thank you certificates for them to create these um, companies in the state of Iowa. And uh, speaking of growing, and uh, next year in 2020, we plan to not only have um, Iowa, but uh, continue to have Illinois IES expand our footprints to Minnesota IES, and now we're adding um, Omaha, Nebraska IES in 2020. So mm-hmm. we see that there are, there are much needs out there and uh, states asking us to come have this event at their state to continue to spur on the immigrant spirit and growing their business and in achieving the American dream. And that's interesting because, you know, uh, across the country, most people think of the upper Midwest as still being a, a lily white community of northern European descendants without a lot of uh, a lot of immigrant, um, you know, in, infusion. And that's just a that's a pretty off base. <laughs> uh, and maybe so. and maybe more and more people are realizing that. I mean, one 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 reason people might start realizing that uh, the Midwest is not is much more diverse than people think is because we've got a, a congresswoman from. Minneapolis, who of course is of Somali descent, and mm-hmm. uh, and I, again, I, I think uh, as has been the the case historically, uh, dating back to when my ancestors first came to this country uh, less than a hundred years ago from Ireland, uh, immigrant families have tended to be those that are just willing to work the hardest, um, do the most difficult work, and to really invest everything they have into trying to make uh, a difference, um, not just because they want to survive, but because they want to be a part of this greater community, of this uh, American experiment that is entirely, uh, you know, other than the uh, folks who have been here prior to settlement, the, our, our indigenous brothers and sisters. It's, it's, a, it's a country that's made up of people who've come here from someone else to try to, try to make something, uh, something happen that they couldn't accomplish where they came from. So I, I think it's great that uh, that we're you're seeing that kind of success. So 172 businesses formed out of last year's Immigrant Entrepreneurs Summit. Yes, we're anticipating now. It's going to be this Saturday, November 23rd. We're anticipating over 800 to 1,000 immigrant entrepreneurs getting together from all over the country. It's become now a national platform mm-hmm. uh, for for other states to take part in, and um, you know it's it's something that we couldn't have done or um, put this together without our community and uh, local sponsors like Wells Fargo and uh, U.S. Bank and even um, grocery stores like Double Dragon that we're so familiar with here in Des Moines, Iowa. Mm-hmm. So in, in the political realm, there is mm-hmm. still a, a much heated conversation about immigrants. And a lot of that has been supercharged because of um, President Trump's interest in building a wall on the southern border, and because some of the comments he's made about, well, uh, frankly, about some of the some of the um, you know new members of Congress who have ancestral connections to other countries. And do you find that uh, that 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 um, that 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 that, that um, his and other 
politicians' efforts to kind of greater, uh, you know, create even greater polarization within the conversation about immigrants. Has that helped or, or hurt those folks who are coming to your summits? That's right. I mean, that, that's always a good question that people are asking when they're coming to our event. And uh, we have seen the last two years people actually come together more, uh, have reasons to come together even more to, to voice their concern and to be more educated and to have the right tools to, to you know, be successful, to, to make their mark. And uh, I think that's, um, you know, obviously brought us together as uh, immigrant entrepreneurs and organizers. So I think, um, you know, we're continuing to use this um, momentum that we're building to just create a, an equalizer and a, a platform for everybody to to have a proper voice uh, in this current day and age. Yeah. So what what kind of business is that? I mean, maybe it's it's probably too broad to really pin down in mm -hmm. any detail, but out of that 172 businesses that formed out of last year's summit, you know, what are some examples of, of the uh, of types of success you've seen? Yeah, so we actually have uh, finalized the, the impact um, count from all last 11 years that we've had this summit, and half a billion dollars in sales were generated from these companies that were formed in Iowa alone. So um, it is such a, such a boastful number that um, we we couldn't even fathom at, at first, but we are just so impressed by uh, these new companies that are being formed and coming back year after year. And they first start off as attendees, later become exhibitors, and later turn around, become sponsors, and maybe even award recipients. So it is a sustainable model that we are seeing that people are encouraged and wanting to give back once they've, they've reached that that success that they've been searching for. So it's, it's, it's very encouraging to see that. And the Immigrant Entrepreneur Summit has been around for how many years now? Now, this is our 12th, 12th. annual summit. So if you, look, if you look back to the businesses that were formed out of the summit back 12 years ago, 11, 10, 9 years ago, are a lot mm -hmm. of those still, uh, still going strong? They are going strong, and uh, a lot of the industries are now changing. Um, surprisingly, you know, um, we, we see more people wanting to do business um, across the, 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 you know, um, take it to a national platform and also take it uh, overseas. Hmm. So they, they do international um, import and export, which, is, which are classes that we have been having very much success in the last uh, uh, three or four years. And so uh, people are now more in tune with having, you know, bringing those uh, goods from their countries back to the U.S. and to make a profit out of, out of those uh, right. exchanges. So it's, it's really... It's really interesting to see how businesses evolve and industries change and uh, people taking it um, at a different scale, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. right from the get-go. So it is uh, interesting to see that, especially when when we feel the, the government and uh, the political realm aren't really so supportive of, of these things. So Yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of strength in people supporting uh, their friends, their neighbors, their family members, uh, folks who uh, they believe in, 
uh, and you know, to, to support the business ventures that they are involved with. That's so important. That's kind of gonna, actually going to be kind of a theme for this whole program today. Later in the program, we're going to be talking about, uh, this may sound like a small thing, but it matters, about the importance of uh, not using the self-checkout line. <laughs> because, uh, you know, every, every, every time those uh, become more popular, uh, employment is, is um, at risk. There's somebody's job is on the line. So we'll talk about that. We're going to talk about a lot of things later in the program, too, about um, things that I get are very related to this. So I'm, I'm hoping you have a – it sounds like you have a great uh, turnout plan, too. You said um, you're expecting between 800 and 1,000 people? Yes, yes. And that's, that's our average every year. That's right. And um, uh, speaking of the job creation you mentioned just now, um, one of the impact factors that we, we also consider are how many new jobs were created from these new companies. And uh, since in, its inception in 2008, uh, over 7,700 new jobs were created from these new companies. So um, wow. definitely not taking any jobs away for sure and uh, right. definitely creating more yeah. more need in the community, now I the, can say. The founder of the Immigrant Entrepreneur Summit, Ying Sa, uh, is a is of Chinese descent. I, I I believe she settled in Canada before she moved to Iowa, but That's she right. um she also has just written a book apparently. She has, and uh, just uh, she she's releasing that at the twelfth uh, annual summit at IES actually. Really, and um, we are uh, very excited about it because she was also uh, just announced. Um, by IRS that she will be on effectively this month, November 2019, on the National Taxpayer Advocate um, panel. So she will be representing the state of Iowa and voice any concerns that, that taxpayers have and advising IRS on a federal level. So um, her coming to this far um, is, is a testament of, uh, you know, um, much of the hard work that immigrants face because right. there were so many so many obstacles along the way for um, for community CPA and also for Ying yeah. because of the the owner's name Ying Sa right, right. so but um, community CPA needless to say has uh, overcome all and has never um, lost to. Um, IRS audit in protecting the client's interests and also making sure everything is in line with the, yeah. the federal government regulations. So you know, I, this book that's coming out actually is called the 8 a.m. Appointment with Ying Sa. <laughs> and this is a series book, uh, the first of four books. And there will be 10 a.m. Appointment with Ying Sa as well as 2 p.m. and 6 p.m. And 8 a.m. is a startup book series on uh, business journey. So yeah, that's clever. Latter, that's clever. <laughs> <laughs> the latter appointment times represent the different uh, business stages in the life cycle of a business. So um, it's something that is going to be very entertaining. Those who know Ying mm -hmm. uh, have a great way of uh, speaking and uh, sharing her knowledge. And by no means will it be um, boring or right. dry. So yeah. we hope you can... Uh, take advantage of the book and um, see from an immigrant entrepreneur side how uh, people come to this country and right. make 
their business successful. And it's just her experience and yeah. working with people and putting together real strategies for businesses. So well, I remember we she, think we'll be very... I remember she told me one of her experiences, and I'm sure there's plenty more to talk about and probably plenty that find their way into her book. But one was... Uh, she had a woman, uh, a European-descended woman, come into the uh, business once, uh, and just just looking at Ying, she said, "Oh no, I wanted a real accountant, <laughs> something like that." <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I, and I can't remember whether she was uh, put off because of Ying's, you know, Ying is Chinese, or because she's a woman, yeah. or or what, but. Uh, <laughs> Just incredible. But, you know, I mean, and every generation of immigrants has new challenges to deal with, although there tend to be patterns based on race, gender, uh, mm-hmm. in, you know, economic status. Uh, I mean, when my relatives came over, again, less than 100 years ago from Ireland, uh, they were greeted with signs that said, if Irish need not apply. So, you know, it wasn't that long ago that my folks were <laughs> were severely discriminated against. Uh, not, right. you know, I, I right. mean, right off the boat, and there it was, the signs greeting you uh, with a offer of non-employment. So, again, I, I can uh, I can empathize with the uh, challenges that Ying and and many others, probably including yourself, have gone through uh, to to you know to succeed at what you do. And I think um, I think the fact that you see so much growth in the Immigrant Entrepreneur Summit after 12 years, I mean, oftentimes you have uh, these kind of you know summits, forums. You know these kind of things form, and then they just kind of fade away after a couple of years. But you're okay. onto, you, you guys are onto something because you keep seeing more and more interest, more and more traffic, and a lot of success, and that's very commendable. Thank you, Ed. It's always great and uh, a privilege to be on your show every year after year and supporting us in this way and getting us to be able to share some information about the event year after year. So great. we appreciate you guys. And if folks want to register or get more information, Dan, where do they go? They can go to www.iesusa.org, or they can call my cell phone and uh, tell me they're interested. I can help them get registered right away, and it's 515-720-5872. Okay. Uh, seven, one, seven, seven, oh, sorry, say it again. 515-720-5872. 720-5872. Great. That's it. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Ed. Folks, we've been talking with Dan Kim about the Immigrant Entrepreneur Summit. Uh, when we come back, uh, Sheila Canoplo Adole is going to join us, and we're going to talk about the self-help line and why you should avoid it. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Philly Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food. Great community. For all your accounting needs, both business and personal, contact Ying Sa at Community CPA with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. It seems that tax law changes every year. You want an accountant who's up to speed on the latest twists and turns, someone who can help make sure your tax return is filed accurately, in a timely manner, and properly, so you don't end up paying any more than you need to pay. 
So give Yang Sa, the founder of Community CPA, a call at 515-288-3188. That's 515-288-3188. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa Farms and Iowa Producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q table.com. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep, and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location and stylish ambiance, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Scott Smith, Tina Haas Finley, and Nick Leo. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. If you haven't been to Noche, you haven't experienced the fullness of Des Moines' cultural revival. If you have, we're sure you'll be back. Noche, located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Fallon Forum, Ed Fallon with you here broadcasting live from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. We're in the studios of Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. Later in the program, we're going to talk about the presidential candidate's stances on the Dakota Access Pipeline. And we'll also give you, a in the climate update section of our conversation, we'll talk about a tale of three cities. Venice, Italy, currently underwater. Bristol, England figuring out how to deal with food security, and Kingston, New York, where they're, where they're working on a barter system that um, is pretty cool and innovative. But first, I want to welcome uh, Sheila Canoplo-Odole to the program. And, yeah, we are live streaming on Facebook, too, if you feel like seeing what we actually look like. Uh, Sheila oh, does a lot of amazing work uh, and is a leader in sustainability here in Des Moines. And um, had a post uh, that caught my eye. Criticizing uh, those of us who tend to be, you know, want it easy and use the self-check line. So what's what, what have you got against the self-check line, Sheila? 
Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, Ed. And I do think that this is an important topic. And the thing, I guess, that worries me the most about the self-checkout lines are the fact that it's taking jobs from people. Um, When we allow technology to replace us, you know, then what are we going to do? And well, we're going to we're going to have Andrew Yang as president. He's going to give us each a thousand dollars a month, and your worries will be over. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, I don't know anybody who can live on twelve thousand dollars a year. You know, nice as that will be, it'll be a little boost, but we'll we definitely will still need an income above and beyond that to um, to fulfill our basic needs. So you know the idea that um, you know uh, what does he call that a universal paycheck? Universal basic income. Universal basic income. Yeah. So the idea that a universal basic income is going to be enough to fulfill just even mm-hmm. basic needs is um, a little bit of a fallacy. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good idea. I support that idea of uh, Mr. Yang's, but it, it's definitely not enough. Right. And it, you know. And again, I, I I do agree with you. Of course, I think I think the more we can do to support people who are uh, actually doing the work, um, you know. And I, I there's there's lots of different ways. That, I mean, I, I rarely, almost even though even though bank checkout uh, or credit union checkout or whatever ATM ATM, mm-hmm. you know the they're um, the drive-through windows. Mm-hmm. You know, those are available mm-hmm. and staffed by real people, but. I feel disconnected when I go through there. I, I'd much rather just walk into my credit union and and meet a person face to face. And actually, it tends to be quicker too normally. Yeah. But um, but a lot of these uh, these innovations that are intended to uh, to you know they're they're proposed as ways of saving us time. They also cut out jobs. Yeah. And I don't. I don't know. Is there, is there any data on how many jobs have been lost because of the self checkout lines? Um, I don't know that I've seen mm. any, uh, and I don't recall exactly if there was anything in that particular article that uh, talked about that. Um, I do recall several years ago I was traveling around the country. This would have been uh, two thousand five, I think, two thousand six, and I happened to be in Oregon. And at that time, and I'm not sure if this is still the case, but at that time the Oregon State Legislature legislature had passed um, a law that you could not pump your own gas. Oh, right, right. Yes. And that was their effort of maintaining jobs for, you know, less skilled people. And I think, you know, in this day and age, I've been to so many different conferences and breakfasts and workshops and stuff that talk about, you know, we want to give good paying jobs to our educated uh, youth so that they don't leave the state well, what about our uneducated youth? Or less educated. Less educated. Yeah. Thank you. That's yeah. a better, definitely a better term. But, right. you know, we, we, we worry about um, how our more privileged sector of the community is going to get by. But we don't worry about providing jobs for our less educated and our undereducated uh, citizens. And I think we need to think about that. Yeah, and uh, what 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 are some answers to that? Um, well, for one thing, you know, I think maybe we need to put a limit on how many of these self checkout um, hmm. systems that we allow uh, stores to have. I don't know if but, that's even possible. Yeah, if, if a store went if a store went entirely to self checkout option, that, that was the only option. Mm-hmm. Then either you would have to do that, or you would take your business to another store. Right. And there, there are probably stores that have done that. 
I'm, I'm guessing there are. I can't imagine that you could be completely <clears throat> self-checkout. You, I mean, even at, like, Target, they have uh, people standing by to help with a self-checkout. And, you know, if you're going to do that, why not just have cashiers, right. you know? Yeah. Um, and I, I think you raised an important point, too. There, it, in a world where we already are so disconnected from each other and we suffer from mental illness, um, you know, and and loneliness and depression in unprecedented rates, you know, sometimes I know for me, I work at home and sometimes the only interaction I have is with a store clerk, mm -hmm. you know, and so I think to continue to take that human exchange out of everything, um, it, it doesn't help us. I think it, it harms right. us in a lot it, of ways. It does, but it's also, I mean, if you think about how popular it is for people simply to order what they want from Amazon, and I, uh, I think Amazon is one of the worst things to happen to our economy, personally, especially since they don't pay any taxes. Right. But, uh, you know, you think about you can just, you can skip... Um, the opportunity to meet people face to face in the marketplace simply by placing your order online. Right. And you can actually skip the opportunity to go out and exercise and meet people when you're running around the lake or bicycling. You can order that ex exercise equipment from Amazon online, delivered to your home. Right. And then just work out there. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Increasingly, we are li living these really isolated, disconnected lives. And, you know, I think that's um, contributing a lot to the social ills that we see around the country, mm. especially in young people who are committing suicide at a greater and greater rates. And you, mm. you know, and you see all of these school shootings by young men who have been mostly, young men. mostly mm -hmm. young men who have been isolated and, you know, are the classic loner profile mm. or whatever. And, you know, it, and, 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 yet those, and yet those things, um, those options appeal to people. Mm -hmm. uh, the the independence, the privacy, the uh, the, the convenience, you know, yeah. those appeal to people. But is there a greater societal obligation, especially given, as you pointed out, one example, the horrific uh, growth in, sh in school shootings and other types of mass shootings? Is there a societal interest in minimizing the opportunities to avoid socialized experiences? I mean, is yeah, I mean, one well, one 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 thing we could start by doing is beginning to you know require Amazon to actually pay taxes. Yeah, uh, that might help Main Street businesses for sure. Right. <laughs> you know. Right. Well, but, uh, exactly, and it might help you know our our uh, state and local governments to provide more mental health services and more job mm -hmm. training. Yeah. You know that kind of thing. So you know, the thing is that if we are going to if we are intent upon replacing one kind of low-skilled job. And it's not really all that low-skilled. I mean, these people are handling money transactions, and, you know, they have mm -hmm. to have character and integrity. Um, and they if, have to be quick. And they have to be quick. <laughs> That's right. You know, and they have to have good customer service and right. interaction mm -hmm. skills, right? But if if we're intent on, for our own convenience or whatever, or for, you know, actually, let's be honest, it's about maximizing profit. Right. Um, yep. You know, if, if, if we're intent upon replacing these sort of entry-level jobs, <laughs> um, then we have to figure out someplace else for people who need them to work. Yeah, and a lot of this ties in with the greater interest that I know you and I share about creating communities that are more sustainable, more resilient, more able to uh, to function 
uh, normally in a very, very rapidly changing environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there is no sustainable community without social equity. So we really have to look at whether this trend is equitable to people. Is it, you know, is it targeting just lower wage workers? Um, and if it if we find that to be the case, then I think we need to do something to address it. I'm not sure what that would be, but I, I, I think it's... Um, dangerous to just sort of complacently accept this as the new trend without questioning it, without um, looking for ways to replace those jobs. Hmm. And, and I think that, you know, as a society, we we have to look out for each other hmm. and we have to make sure that everybody has got work that is, you know, dignified. That well, they can you do. know, and, and again, tied to this and maybe even a bigger issue is, and especially to, we should be thinking about this at the time of the year when a lot of folks are preparing to go out and spend a lot of money on holiday gifts. Mm-hmm. The, um, it, it makes a difference whether you decide to buy a product at Walmart mm-hmm. Or whether you go to a, a local business owned by somebody in your community, mm-hmm. uh, whether you go to a chain restaurant or a restaurant owned by a family who lives in your neighborhood, right? And whether you go to H and R Block or whether you support a local, you know, accountant, mm-hmm. maybe they just have a few clients. You know, those decisions all make a big difference in how healthy and diverse and and functioning our community is. And I think I think it's something that people really need to think about. I did it one year. Oh, years ago, it was back in the late 90s, I believe, um, uh, my family, all four of us, agreed that, <laughs> probably with lots of encouragement from me, agreed that we would only shop at local businesses between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Mm-hmm. It was challenging. Yeah. But it was doable. It yeah. was doable. And, you know, it's not the, the, the difference in terms of amount, of amount amount of money spent, not that big a deal. Yeah. Because uh, there's always, you know, there's always some product you can get product you can get at Walmart that's uh, that's cheaper because that's their lost leader. That's what they they use to bring you in the door. Right. And then you pay more or as much for other products right. as, you, as you would pay at a locally owned business. Right. Right. Uh, and so the other part is, what's wrong with paying a little bit more in order to keep my neighbor, you employed. know, owning his own business or right. employed or able to employ a few people at a decent wage? Right. So right. I, to me, that's uh, that's my shtick. Well, and that's you know that's a value system, and uh, some people would probably argue that you know it's a value system that only the privileged can consider. I don't I don't think that's the case. Um, you know, we have this delusion that shopping at Walmart is cheaper, but it's like you say, they, they have the loss leaders that bring people in the door. And research has actually found that some of the, you know, quite a bit of their stuff is more expensive. Yep, that's true. But yep. w- people continue to operate under this idea that it's less expensive. And so, you know, it attracts people with um, yeah. less resources. A very effective advertising campaign. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, you know, some of, some of these uh, large chains' ability to offer products Products at uh, lower cost involves paying workers terrible wages, mm-hmm. um, right? Getting you know, uh, forcing uh, forcing. You know, for example, I know one one business. I can't remember which it was. Um, I won't I won't say which one it was. Mm-hmm. But they were um, they were really good about forcing out the competition by saying, "Look, you've got to give us um, a lower bid. If you give us a lower lower price, mm-hmm. we'll you know we'll contract with you for." 
more than have you know more than everything else you've got coming in combined. Right. And so you know they have a way of strong arming right. uh, their suppliers. Well, and you know I'm just going to say it. Walmart is notorious for helping their um, employees to sign up for things like food stamps. <laughs> right. Right. Because so they, they don't, don't pay them a living yeah. wage. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's a huge part of the problem. We're just our, – our big corporations are so consumed with greed and profit over everything else that it's, it's really difficult um, to get control of, you know, their, their mm-hmm. guiding principles and make them see that, you know, that's, it's unhealthy for the larger community. But – you know, you're talking about people who don't care. They they can uh, they can buy themselves a jet that will you know when a tornado hits their area they can jet off to their mountain home or whatever you know yeah. to some other place uh, while the rest of us deal with the right. crisis at hand. Yeah. You know. Well, um, anyway, a good conversation to start off. What yeah. again is soon to become the notorious. Uh, uh, end of the year shopping season. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I appreciate you taking the time to visit Absolutely. with us, Sheila. And it's a good, um, a good reminder. Uh, support your cashiers. Yeah. Avoid the self checkout line. Exactly, yeah. and support local business. You know, and independent businesses. Um, they are important community uh, members. They pay, provide taxes. They provide jobs. Um, and you know, if we want a world that isn't completely corporate owned and corporate controlled, then we have to support each other in our entrepreneurial and individual efforts to make a living. Yep. Well said. Yeah. All right. Sheila Canoplo Adoli with us here, folks, or a.k.a. also known as Sheila K.O. That's right. A little easier. <laughs> All right. Hey, thanks for sticking around for us. And, folks, we'll be back in a minute here. We're going to talk about the uh, presidential campaign. Uh, for the last three months, um, candidates have been grilled on whether or not they support the Dakota Access Pipeline. The results are in, and they're a little bit surprising. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Fallon Forum, Ed Fallon, your host here, has we broadcast from La Reina, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. Quick shout out to some of our local business partners here in the Des Moines metro, uh, thanks to Gateway Market and Cafe. And they've always got some special going on, and this week you can check out what they're offering online at their website. Uh, that's my grocery store, and also a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. They've also got a catering service. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Uh, Thanks to Hawk Restaurant, and congratulations to Hawk for just celebrating its seventh anniversary. Hawk uh, serves almost entirely uh, a menu from local sources. Ninety percent of what they serve comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Thanks also to Diversity Insurance, located at 1541 East Grand in Des Moines. Uh, Diversity is where you can get your entire insurance package under one roof. No appointment needed. Stop by. Again, that's at 1541 East Grand. And thanks to Community CPA with offices in Des Moines, Iowa City, and Minneapolis. All your tax and accounting needs uh, can be managed uh, at Community CPA and Associates. All right, welcome back to the show, folks. And again, later in the program, uh, we will be uh, talking about... um, well, in our climate update, we'll be talking about a tale of three cities, uh, Venice, Italy, Bristol, England, and Kingston, New York. What do they have in common? Well, we'll talk about that 
later. Find out. <laughs> okay, so anyway, um, for a long time, oh, since, uh, well, since early this year, um, uh, and in, in, in great depth since July, the uh, bird dogs of Bold, Iowa, have been out questioning presidential candidates about, well, the climate crisis in general, but specifically about the Dakota Access Pipeline. Now, uh, for folks who may not be up to speed on this, the Dakota Access Pipeline is uh, the, what, 1,500-mile-long uh, pipeline, that's roughly, that runs from North Dakota through South Dakota through Iowa to Illinois, where it connects with another pipeline and runs oil down to Texas. And as we're discovering, much of it is uh, intended for export. So... Um, about 570,000 barrels of oil a day flow through that pipeline, and the pipeline company, the owner of the company, Energy Transfer Partners, wants to increase the flow of that oil to 1.1 million barrels per day. Now, there are problems with that. Uh, and one of the big problems in the initial building of the pipeline was that it used eminent domain to take people's land against their will. That's not an issue anymore, at least not in Iowa. They want to retrofit one of the, one of the uh, pumping stations near Cambridge, Iowa. But what is the problem is the increased flow is, um, is likely to involve greater damage when that pipeline leaks and spills. And again, not a matter of if, matter of when. So, and we just saw a spill on the, uh, on the Keystone Pipeline in North Dakota of 383,000 barrels, uh, or uh, sorry, gallons. Um, that's a huge problem for the uh, farmer whose land that's on and for the marsh, the, water, the watershed in which that happened. So, yeah, that's an issue. What happens when uh, twice as much oil spills as uh, was previous, previously running through the pipeline? What happens with the fact that it's, uh, it's, there's more pressure, more, um, you know, more heat, more, uh, you know, more wear and tear on the pipe itself, especially where you've got joints? And, again, where you have joints, uh, the most... Uh, the most uh, significant joints are always under the rivers where the pipe dips and then crosses and it comes back the other side. The biggest problem, of course, is the increased carbon footprint at a time when we are being told by scientists that we have to begin drastically reducing uh, our consumption of fossil fuels. We have to be cutting back on our carbon footprint in a big way. Instead of doing that, we are increasing our consumption. We are exacerbating the problem still further. We're pumping more and more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And if you double the amount of oil flowing through this pipeline, estimates are that that's the equivalent of 30 new coal-fired power plants. That's a lot of carbon emissions. And again, at a time when we don't have any budget left for increasing the amount of greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere. Already, if we cut off if we cut it off today, we'd still be seeing you know, incredible problems. So it's been really important to a lot of people across the state of Iowa uh, that uh, the, um, that the uh, candidates running for president take a stand on this issue. So we, we, uh, we have information from 17 of the candidates. Again, it was discussed uh, – well, there was no chance to talk about it with President Donald Trump, but um, – uh, we were able to talk with um, Governor Sanford about it, 
from South Carolina, and he, he uh, expressed um, concern about climate change and concern about pipelines, and then he dropped out. So, uh, <laughs> But of the candidates that are in the race, uh, the 17 that we've had a chance to communicate with on this, 10 of them uh, speak strongly about uh, opposing expanding the Dakota Access Pipeline. Uh, and they are Cory Booker, uh, John Delaney, Tulsi Gabbard, Kamala Harris, uh, Bernie Sanders, Joe Sestek, Tom Steyer, Elizabeth Warren, and Marianne Williamson. Also, uh, Pete Buttigieg. But we were hoping, when we were soliciting statements and input, we were hoping for more than just, quote, Pete is opposed to DAPL expansion. Okay, great. Glad you're with us on that. We would have liked to have heard a little bit more. And so, uh, you know, that, that was kind of a, a little bit of a disappointment. Again, most of the candidates spent... Um, you know, invested some time and effort in giving us a, re- a response that uh, was more than just a one-word answer. Um, and uh, some were really clear about, uh, you know, I mean, Booker, for example, he says, as president, I will rescind approvals for the Keystone Pipeline and the DAPL and require free, prior, and informed consent from tribal nations for all future major energy projects on federal lands that would affect those communities. Um, you know, John Delaney is also, he said, I, I oppose building the DAPL in the first place, and I certainly oppose increasing its capacity now. Um, Gabbard talks quite a bit about her visit to, Stan, to Standing Rock um, back in 20, 2016, when the Dakota Access Pipeline was still in, you know, still under discussion. And, um, you know, I, I will say a, a, lot of the, uh, a lot of the responses uh, tend to reflect concerns about the impact on uh, on in North Dakota, and that's really important. I'm, I'm really glad to see that people are not forgetting the courageous uh, stand that folks made at Standing Rock to try to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline from going right next to the res- right next to that that community's water supply. Um, I think for some reason uh, there's been less awareness of the impact on Iowa, and again, some of that impact is uh, is is history now. But the uh, the number of people who were the number of landowners and farmers who were adversely affected, uh, both through the the traumatic experience of dealing with eminent domain, um, but also through what happened to their land, uh, the turning of topsoil, the mixing of topsoil with subsoil, and how that you know ruins your soil's health, how it reduces crop yields, uh, how digging through a field at a diagonal level at a diagonal angle. Uh, ruins your tiling system. If you've got a tiling system, uh, that's that's that, and that's one reason why we saw such strong opposition in areas where tiling was common. And I know that uh, tiling has its own issues. There are concerns about its impact on water quality, um, and I would argue that uh, those concerns may be legitimate. But there's a way to manage the tiling system uh, where you don't create. Uh, those kinds of problems, and I, I had a lot of empathy for the farmers who who had that um, had that experience of having their tile uh, torn up and not replaced properly. Uh, so there were just uh, and those are just a few examples, uh, you know. But um, there's less awareness about the uh, proposed doubling because it's just not as invasive as this vast 350 mile long, 150 foot swath of destruction across our state. But, um, you know, I, I, think, I think more and more candidates are aware of just how much of a problem this is. Now, um, 
The three candidates, there were four candidates that did not respond at all. Michael Bennett, Steve Bullock, uh, Julian Castro, and surprisingly, Andrew Yang. Because overall, Andrew Yang has been pretty responsive. But um, the uh, response that was very confusing was Joe Biden, who uh, said in response to a question from me last week that he was against pipelines. Uh, and Kathy Burns, my partner, you know, reiterated we want to know where you stand on Dapple. And he, he, he said, I'm going to refuse to give a statement. He says, quote, all you guys in Iowa are pains in the neck. You know that? <laughs> uh, and then he goes on to say that he's against, he opposed the pipeline to begin with. But then he goes on to say that, quote, in America right now, we have gas pipelines put in in the 1960s. They're leaking methane. Are you ready to pay more taxes to make sure we dig them up and make great jobs and put new pipelines down to be able to make sure we can travel this way. I have no idea what he's talking about by saying travel this way. But he basically just said he's against pipelines and then he's for replacing old pipelines with new ones. And all that does is perpetuate the system of reliance on carbon-based fuels, in this case gas. You know, you can't have it both ways, Mr. Biden. And um, we're seeing right through that. So on the other end, uh, is Michael Bloomberg, who was just very blunt. When we asked him about the Dakota Access Pipeline, he said, what's the big deal? It's underground. Okay, fair enough. We know where you stand. <laughs> At least he answered the question. At least Biden answered the question. Amy Klobuchar has done everything she can to avoid talking about pipelines. She will either be vague or um, evasive or simply walk away. I've, we've seen that happen on uh, three occasions. Where she just walks away when you bring up the word pipeline. But she did say, and this is very instructive, she said at a at a um, event in Iowa Falls back in May, "quote We need to greatly reduce our dependence on fossil fuels, and eventually we'll, we won't need these pipelines if we do that in the right way, or we'll need them in a limited way." And then she goes on to say, "Because I think we're going to need them, quote, for many years in the future." So basically, she's she's hedging herself. Um, she's trying to sound like, "Yeah, yeah, we want to do something about reducing fossil fuels, but." It isn't um, getting us off fossil fuels. It's just kind of scaling it back a bit. It's not saying we don't need pipelines. She's not saying she won't support pipelines. She's just saying we'll need them in a limited way for many years in the future. So, yeah, I think this, uh, this, uh, this research by Bold Iowa uh, through a lot of hard work <laughs> on a lot of people, pretty impressive. Okay, folks, thanks for tuning into the Fallon Forum. Stay tuned if you're on our community-owned stations. We'll be back in a few minutes to give you an update on climate change in three cities across the world. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. In this segment of our program, known as the Climate Update, we're going to look at three cities around the world that... Uh, are either being impacted by the climate crisis or, and or are doing something to prepare for those impacts. Uh, perhaps most noticeable this week, uh, Venice. Now, I've, I've been to Venice. Uh, fascinating story, actually. I was um, hitchhiking from Switzerland to then Yugoslavia. I was going to visit a monastery <laughs> where a friend of mine uh, was a monk. And I got picked up by... Uh, two German gals and a French guy who happened to be going to Venice. And I said, 
Oh, what the heck? I'll go to Venice instead. <laughs> and we camped out on a beach just south of Venice. And I remember um, uh, toward, toward, toward nightfall, the, uh, I remember this cloud bank across the Adriatic Sea. Uh, and even though the wind was off the shore and pushing strong out toward the Adriatic, this cloud bank seemed to be getting closer, bigger. And I realized, and then, and then the wind stopped blowing, and I realized what was happening. Wind's changing direction. That big monster of a cloud is coming our way. And I spent most of the night, um, we were hunkered down under a uh, awning, and I spent most of the night trying to brush water with a broom away from my newfound friends who were trying to get some sleep. <laughs> and so the next day, not well rested, but content. We, we went into Venice, and uh, I, I was blown away. It's just such an amazing city, an amazing place. I mean, that explains why there are so many, what, 36 million tourists a year visit Venice, which I guess is home to about 50,000 people. But I'd say if you really want to visit Venice, folks, now is the time. Uh, Venice uh, is unlikely to fare well in the new climate era. And again, we've already seen sea level rise. We're seeing an acceleration of the melting of ice in the northern and, and southernmost parts of our planet. And uh, there, it's, it's hard to imagine a scenario in which Venice survives uh, significant sea level rise. So, uh, you know, it's not that the city hasn't seen flooding before, but they're, here they're seeing, um, what, three times in, in one week uh, major flooding. And again, part of this has to do with uh, heavy rain that has affected uh, the entire country of Italy and uh, caused problems in Florence and Pisa. Uh, but again, because of its unique design, well, you know, Venice uh, you know, is hit the hardest. It's most noticeable there. Ironically, I did not know this, but I, I would have thought Venice was a fairly progressive city, but apparently it's not. Uh, or at least the uh, the leadership is um, is pretty uh, uh, right wing. <laughs> I did not know this. Uh, the um, it's it's I guess it's called the regional council. Uh, the, the the right wing parties are the League, the Brothers of Italy, and Forza Italia. And they just the other day they they rejected amendments offered by Andrea Zanoni. That's the uh, Democratic Party's deputy. Uh, uh, chairman of the council, um, they, uh, <laughs> they, they rejected amendments to fight the climate crisis in 2020, and then moments later, the city council chamber was flooded. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> get the message here, folks. Um, anyway, it's, it's sad, but it's the reality. There are places on planet Earth, many, many places that are not going to fare well in the new climate era. And uh, if I can resist the urge to uh, gloss over it, I'm going to amend what I just said. I, I, I'm not going to say they will not fare well. I will just come out and say they will, not, they will no longer exist. And I'm afraid Venice is one of those. I don't know what happens, whether they try to move the amazing structures. Or whether you, can you move buildings that are hundreds and hundreds of years old? I don't know. You certainly can't um, completely recreate <laughs> Venice on higher ground. We'll see. Again, I'm glad I've been there once. If you're thinking of going, now's the time. Uh, hopefully, these, uh, this string of, of tides that have flooded the city one time after another will, 
not persist, but again, let's, let's stop. Let's live in reality. This is the new reality. Or this is a transitory point as we move to a new reality that's even more severe, more drastic, and more problematic. Meanwhile, <laughs> there are communities that are uh, unlike Venice, uh, where, again, they rejected, uh, rejected proposals to deal with climate change, there are communities that are dealing with what is likely to happen, even though they don't see the impacts right now. Take uh, Bristol, England. Um, you know, they, they, uh, there's a great article in The Guardian called Food After Oil, how, how urban farmers are preparing us for a self-sufficient future. And Bristol apparently is, um, is leading the way on this. Um, two miles from the center of the city, there's a tiny little farmyard that's um, next to a railway embankment. It's just kind of clustered in between homes and, and uh, a car rental depot, apparently. And on that little farmyard, there are pigsties. <laughs> uh, there's a paddock uh, where you've got... Um, some Dexter cattle. I like Dexter cattle, though that's an Irish breed. Uh, they're grazing. And you've also got some vegetable plots. And a young, uh, a young woman and her husband, she's, uh, she's 32, and the three kids, they are the, um, they are the uh, farmers. It's an old um, site that used to be a, a market garden, uh, and it's uh, now a fully functioning four-acre small farm that... Uh, actually makes some money. They have vegetable boxes, and I guess vegetable boxes, I think that's what we would call, uh, you know, community-supported agriculture where you, where you pay uh, a fee up front and then every month or maybe more often you get a box from, from that farm. Uh, the farm also sells bagged salads and meat. The young farmer's name is uh, Mary Conway. She's 32, and she and her husband... And three kids uh, operate this, uh, this little small holding in the city of Bristol. Well, good for them. That's pretty cool. Now, meanwhile, on the other side of the pond, uh, our side of the pond, the uh, city of Kingston, New York, is um, preparing itself. This is, the again, The Guardian, the best newspaper out there in terms of coverage of the climate crisis, hands down. I, and I, I guess I wish I didn't have to say that. I wish I could say that all the media... We're figuring this out. We're covering climate. But here's a story about a town in New York, written by a paper on the other side of the pond. <laughs> Kingston, New York. The U.S. city preparing itself for the collapse of capitalism. Again, this is all tied into the, uh, the ascendancy of climate change. So it's a city of 23,000 people on the Hudson River and uh, nestled next to the Catskill Mountains. Um, it's, a, uh, you know, it's, um, I'll, I'll read you, read you a sentence here. The streets of Uptown are bustling with eateries and, of late, places to buy velvet halter dresses, vintage boleros, CBD tinctures, and LCD tea kettles with precision pour spouts. That's beautiful writing. I had to, I had to share that with you. So, um, the author of this, uh, article, this column in the uh, Guardian, um, her name is, uh, her name escapes me. Oh, here it is. Uh, 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 Alexander Marvar, I believe I'm saying it correctly. She moved to Kingston from New York City about 10 years ago after the uh, Great Recession of 2008. 
and um, ended up uh, help, uh, owning a building where she could live and also practice her art. But um, one of the problems was uh, America's healthcare system uh, is uh, so expensive, so out of reach for so many people uh, that um, people were starting to think about how can, how can we afford healthcare without money? <laughs> and so um, she says that her friends who were doctors and dentists valued the work that she and other artists were doing valued it equal to their own. And so they came up with a plan, a plan involving uh, a very um, new technology called barter. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, or as my Native American friends call it, wampum. Barter uh, worked well to trade, I like this, quote, the art of medicine for the medicine of art. So uh, nine years ago, in October, they launched their first weekend-long festival of street art, live music, and health-related events. Uh, they called it O+, yeah, like the blood type. And the, uh, the uh, public were invited to attend, make a donation, no you know, a set fee. Um, healthcare professionals were there to uh, staff an on-site uh, clinic, a pop-up clinic, and uh, over the years, um, lots of different artists uh, have received medical, dental, and wellness services worth hundreds and, in some cases, thousands of dollars. And some artists say, they, say the care they received even saved their lives. So this is, um, you know, this is kind of a sidebar to the main conversation about the environmental impacts of climate. But, yeah, um, how many more ways can we think about where we can avoid having to uh, engage in currency exchange. And I know the IRS would like to tax our barter, but um, I don't know how they're going to do that. <laughs> but uh, I have found in my own life that barter works really, really well in a lot of different ways. And I strongly encourage people to think about that. And uh, I, I want to learn more about Kingston, New York. I, actually, if I'm uh, next time I'm on a book tour, I'm going to head, head that way and see if I can connect with some of these folks because I'm, you know, innovation, resilience, uh, reconnecting with our community, our neighbors, our family, our friends. Those are the things that are going to be instrumental in helping us through the climate crisis. And again, I wish the folks in Venice, Italy good luck. I'm excited to see what might transpire in Bristol, England, with more and more reliance on local food sources. And again, I want to hear your stories. Contact me with what you're working on in your community to try to make a difference in how we navigate the new climate era. And I can be reached at ed at fallonforum.com. This is Ed Fallon, your host on the Fallon Forum.